0: Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Good morning. So let me ask you a strange question. How many of you have ever ridden on one of those mechanical bulls, and your back still is surviving, no, no, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) there was a pastor, John Ortberg, who was with some friends at an open air uh, meeting, and they spotted a mechanical bull, and they were watching, and the operator said, oh, it's a lot more fun riding than watching. So John is like, okay, I'll go. And he was going to hop on there, and the guy explained to him. He said, now, there are 12 levels, just so you know. There there are 12 levels of, you know, one is the easiest all the way up to 12. It's like, okay, okay. So listen, I, I I want you to hear some of how John describes this experience. He gets on the bull. It's jumping around, you know, moving around. He said, you know, make sure you get to the center of gravity, follow the bull, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. He says, my arms were flailing around all over the place. I just hung on, and finally the bull slowed down and stopped, and I was still on the bull. It wasn't pretty, but I made it. I imagined how surprised the operator of the bull would be that I had triumphed. So I looked over at him, and he looked at me, Shaking his head, he smiled and said, nice job, that was level one. (laughs) The point, there's always room to grow. There are always levels of growth. And that's true whether you're riding a mechanical bull or you're in your career or you're talking about your spiritual life spiritual life is always about growing to be more and more like Christ. And so today I want to invite your attention to first Corinthians. There's a group of people in a city called Corinth that needed to learn this. They were, let's say they were, they were Christians, but maybe they were riding on level one of the bull and Paul wanted them to move up to level 2 and 3 and 4 and all the way up to chapter 12. We're, we're doing this series called Living Letters. Never done anything quite like it uh, here at Harvest, but each week we're taking one of the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul and we're doing the whole thing. And so if you would like uh, a journal, uh, these are out in the lobby. If you want to read along through the week and help prep for it, we have some of these available for you as well. So here's the background of of First Corinthians. While Paul was ministering in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, he he learned that the church in Corinth that he had founded, he spent like eighteen months in Corinth on his second missionary journey. While he's in Ephesus on the third journey, he learns that Corinth was divided and it was immature so he wrote them a letter that covered a wide variety of topics this you know we have in our new testament we have first corinthians and second corinthians paul probably wrote maybe as many as four letters back and forth to the corinthians we two of them have been preserved for us in the bible um but we're going to look at first corinthians and first corinthians really in many ways is unlike any of the other thirteen almost all of the other thirteen letters there 's a sustained argument. Paul is really trying to get at one major theme or maybe a, a joining of two or three themes, and he, he he just drives home in a lot of ways, but in First Corinthians you don 't really have that he He goes from topic to topic. The to topic just back and forth. He covers this, and then he covers that, and he covers the other. And some of these are topics that he learned about and knew about and wanted to cover, and and some of them were topics that they had asked him about. Obviously, they had asked Paul, "Hey, what about such and such?" So that's the background of First Corinthians. And as we get here, let me give you like a thirty-second uh, theological point about sanctification. Sanctification, the word sanctification is, means growing to become more and more like Christ. And if you are a Christian today, and if I were to ask you, are you sanctified? If you answered yes, you would be right. If you answered No, you would be wrong (laughs) maybe you say yes i am but my wife isn't that would not be a good answer but if you answered not yet that would also be right so there's there's a there's a sanctification that happens for every christian the minute you're saved you're perfect you're forgiven you're standing before god is absolute but then there's Progressive sanctification, where day by day and week by week and year by year, you grow to become more and more and more like Jesus Christ. That is what 1 Corinthians is about. In fact, that's what really, in one sense, all of Paul's letters are about. They're about helping people develop these people who are already perfect, but who aren't living perfect yet. To learn, to grow, to be more and more like Christ, and, and that's all of us, right? We're, we're. If you're a Christian today, you're perfect. Not that you're sinless, but in God's sight, you're perfect. And yet, we all know, right, that in the practical, every day, we we still sin, we still fall, we still need to grow, and that's what this letter can help us do. And What I want to do with this letter, and this is on your outline sheet, I I see some evidences, in fact, and these aren't all of them, but these are kind of the main ones. I see five evidences of spiritual immaturity that Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to walk through these. There was divisions over following leaders. Secondly, there was sexual immorality. Third, there was the use of liberty. How do I use my liberty, my freedom in Christ? Then there was idolatry and desiring evil. And then there was not understanding what it means to be a member of the body of Christ and to serve the body of Christ. And so these are the five areas. We're going to just take a quick look at each one of those areas. And then when we're done with the message, we're going to have a prayer time and we're going to pray that God will help us grow in those areas, but I want you to help me today with some hand motions, okay? So, we'll do these all the way through. So, first of all, if you'll take your right hand, or if you're left handed, I guess you can take your left hand, and put it out in front of you like that, just like you're looking at it, alright? That's your mirror. Okay, that's your mirror. That's when you're looking at yourself. That's when your focus is on you, okay? So, we're gonna examine how many times the Corinthians were looking at themselves, and how many times they should and shouldn't. All right? So that's that. All right? The second one is sometimes you need to look around at others. So get your binoculars ready and just look look around at others. All right? Focus on others for a minute. All right? All right? So you got it. You got it here. This is, this is your mirror. All right? Put your mirror up. Okay? Look around at others. Okay? And then looking at God, focusing on God. So let's just do like this. Let's just... Focus on God is like this, okay? All right, so let me test you. Let's see. <laughs> let's just see. All right, what, what does it look like when you're focusing on yourself? Got it? How about when you're focusing on others? All right, and how about if you're looking at focusing on God? Okay, there you go. Now let's watch the Corinthians and let's see what these evidences of spiritual immaturity are. Let's see what the answer might be for us. The first one is that there were divisions over following leaders. Beginning in chapter one, verse 10... Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Okay, Paul was the church planter, right? Apollos was a minister also. Cephas, That was Peter. Peter had been used by God and Christ. And some were saying, no, I, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. And how does this happen today? I, I'm, I don't usually hear people say, well, I follow so-and-so as opposed to following Christ. But, you know, this morning in the hall, I saw, heard some kids going up and down the hall. And one of them said, I follow Pastor Jerry. And another said, well, not me. I follow Pastor Corey. And them said, well, I really follow Pastor Jim. And then the youngest one said, no, I follow Christ. <laughs> no, they really didn't say that. It sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But somehow their attractions, their focus wasn't on Christ, right? They, they should have been doing this, right? But what were they doing? <laughs> that, that's, that's exactly right. They were, they were looking at others. They were looking at these leaders. They were focusing on them. And what does Paul say to them? Notice his prescription beginning in verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? This is verse 4 of chapter 3 for when one says I follow Paul and another I follow Apollos are you not mere human beings after all or what after all is Apollos and what is Paul only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task notice what Paul says I planted the seed Apollos watered it but God has been making it grow so neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the ones who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building." <laughs> Hey, I can speak on behalf of our pastors here, Pastor Corey, Pastor Jim. We really appreciate the way harvesters treat us and love us and respect us and help us. But we have no desire for any of you to follow us or to put us on a pedestal. We're just like you. We're followers of Christ. And the only way we would say follow us is what Paul said, and that is follow me as I follow Christ. They had a problem with that. And that was an evidence of their spiritual immaturity. So they needed not to do this. They needed not to focus on people. They needed to put their focus on Christ. That was the solution. The solution to spiritual immaturity that, res, uh, that is reflected in divisions is unity. It's focus on Christ. Focus on the cross and focus on God rather than on human leaders. I think not focusing on human leaders, again, we're called in the Bible to respect human leaders and to submit to them and to pray for them and to love them, but we're not called to put them on a pedestal. We're not called to create divisions because we follow them so much. We're called to follow Christ. And that's what these first few chapters of 1 Corinthians are about. The second evidence of spiritual immaturity was sexual immorality. And we find this in particular in chapter 5 and 6. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So there was a lot of sexual immorality in Corinth. I mean, Corinth was like... Any any American city, New York, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco. I mean, it was a center of trade and commerce. It was bustling, but it was also bustling with immorality. And so, there's a lot of. In fact, they even had temple prostitutes in in this city. It's horrible, horrible situation. And so pagans, those who didn't know God, were very involved in immorality. And Paul says, "You know what? Something's happening in the church." A man is with his mother-in-law, sleeping with his father's wife. And what? how did the Corinthians respond to it? Were they broken up over it? Were they praying for him? Were they loving him? Were they trying to purify him? No, you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So in this chapter, Paul the Apostle supports church discipline which is what we're called to do. Matthew 18, Jesus set it up, right? If your brother sins, you go to him. And if he hears you and repents, great. If he doesn't hear you, you take two. And if he doesn't hear two, then you bring him before the church because we're not perfect, nobody's perfect, we all have issues we're working on. But living and persisting in continual, blatant, intentional sin is a cancer on the body of Christ. And we have to love each other enough to make sure that we're helping each other not let that happen. This is what Paul is doing. Skip down to verse 9. I wrote in my letter, and this was probably, this is one of those letters that we don't have now. Uh, But they had it. I wrote in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would leave the world. Paul is realistic, right? (laughs) But I'm now writing to you, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? That's a rhetorical question. No business, he means, right? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Spiritual or Church discipline is not a topic we like to talk about. Uh, it's not a holier-than-thou thing. It's to be always done humbly. Galatians, Paul said... You know, if someone's taken in a sin, you who are spiritual, go to them and restore them, but do it gently, lest you be tempted yourself. But it is part of the way God has designed the body of Christ, and we support that, of course. Chapter 6, verse 13, as he's um, concluding about sexual immorality, not just about that one situation, but just the whole thing about... Why, <clears throat> why you shouldn't commit fornication, for instance, or adultery. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So in this case, what were the Corinthians doing? Who were they looking at with your hand motion? Partly they were looking at themselves and partly they were looking at focusing on each other in the wrong way, right? Right? And what Paul is saying is, look, look to God at this. Here's the solution. The solution for this spiritual immorality of sexual immaturity, or, or spiritual immaturity of sexual immorality, is to purge it from the church and your lives and honor marriage. Purge sexual immorality from your own lives. Purge it from the church. This is serious. It's very serious. And if it exists, we need to confront it and start walking down the steps so that it does not infect the body of Christ. And then in chapter 7, which we won't look at, he talked about marriage, and you're to honor marriage. We come to chapter 8, and there's another evidence of spiritual immaturity, and it's how they were using their liberty. So, you know, there are many things in the Bible that are just just clearly spelled out. It's just black and white. There's no question about it. Like lying is always wrong. Uh, murder is wrong. Uh, those are the things that are clear. Just a couple examples. There are other things like that, right? But then there are things in Scripture that aren't crystal clear. And this is where Christian liberty comes in. There are things that we make decisions on that you can't go to a Bible verse, a passage, and say, oh, this is what God is telling me to do, right? I mean, if you're like, "Uh, I really don't like my next-door neighbor, should I murder them? There's a Bible verse you can go to that will show you not to do that. But if you're a parent, for instance, and you're trying to decide, should you send your children, should you homeschool your children, Or should you send them to a private school or charter school, a Montessori school, a public school, or Christian school? You can't go to a verse, one verse that says that. There are passages that speak to parental responsibilities, and in a case like that, okay, then you decide. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's say you have elderly parents, and they're starting to need care, and you know that there's a, there's a biblical principle that you're supposed to honor your mother and father. and But you've got to decide. Some people decide the best way to honor their mother and father is to put them in a care facility where they can be cared for. And other people say, well, no, I'm going to care for them by having them in my home. You, you can't go to a Bible verse that tells you which one to do, right? There are so-called gray issues. And Christians uh, do different things in gray issues, right? Well, the Corinthians had one such issue. In those days, when you would go down to the market, some of you have been in these kind of, a lot of times third world countries or whatever, where when you get food, you're not going to a grocery store. You're not going to Harris Teeter or Publix and, you know, finding the neatly wrapped meat. <laughs> you're going down into the market and you're buying stuff and it usually doesn't smell very good in those markets. <laughs> and in some of those places, the food had been sacrificed to idols. The people selling it were pagans and they're like, oh, we're going we're gonna to sacrifice this to our idol. And so then what do Christians do? Now that they become Christians, should we eat that food? Because it's involved with idols. And some people were kind of taking the stance, oh, no, we shouldn't eat that food because it's been offered to idols. And then other Christians apparently were taking the stance like, you know what, (laughs) these idols aren't real. God's the only real God. It's not going to bother me. I'm going to eat it. Right? This is an example. How do they use their liberty? Do you say, well, I'm going to eat and everybody should eat? I'm going to judge those who don't eat. Or do you say, I'm not going to eat and everybody should not eat. And I'm going to judge those. that? How do you handle all of these kind of things? Well, Paul addresses it. Chapter 8, verse 8. Again, we're just hitting the high points. Food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple. Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. See what he's saying? You know that there's no such thing as an idol, so you go on and eat that food, but you know that your brother or sister doesn't have that knowledge. You've got the knowledge, and you're like, I'm going to do it anyway. They don't know it. They go to do it, and for them it would be a conscience issue. Verse 12, when you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against God. Or against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. So here in 8.13, Paul establishes the principle that sometimes we should give up some of the things we have freedom to do. For the benefit of others. Now, it gets tricky. It's not like you can't make all of your decisions based on other people because pe- there are some people that are going to be, a, 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 quote, offended. They're going to be upset. But that's not what a biblical stumbling block or a biblical offense is. It's not just that somebody's going to disagree with you, it's somebody who actually would be led to do something that would be harmful for them. And then in chapter 9, Paul showed them how he put this principle into, into practice in his own life. He said, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though... I'm not free from God's law, but under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. You see what Paul is saying? Do you see what his solution is? His solution to this issue about how you use your liberty is surrender your rights for the benefit of others, like Paul did. Surrender your rights. So remember our three things, the the mirror, this, and this. What were the Corinthians doing here in this issue of liberty? What were most or many of them doing? Yeah, well, some of them were doing this, right? It's like, this is what I want. I want to eat, and I don't care whether they like it or not. And Paul is saying, what should they do? (laughs) They should focus on others. They should say, wait a minute, all of my liberty, I want to make sure it's not going to hurt other people. And they should be doing this too, right? Do it before God. We lived, you know... Grew up, born in Virginia, grew up here, lived in Chicago area for nine years while I was pursuing uh, a master 's and doctorate and uh, When we lived there, our boys were just coming along three sons i 'm not a big huge baseball fan. I like football a lot better pro football and college basketball um, but our three boys, one of them liked the Cubs. One of them like the Braves, and one of them like the White Sox. <laughs> they had three different, three different allegiances there. And the, my oldest son was the White Sox fan. And uh, one time, I, I took him to a White Sox game in the old Comiskey Park. Um, we sat behind third base, like right behind third base all the way at the top <laughs> i mean we could see third base somewhere down there but we were literally on the very top row and i'm like we got there it was an afternoon game or something and i'm like jonathan look there's you know look at all those empty seats i said you want to move down you want to get? no no he liked being on the top row well comiskey park was named after Charles Comiskey, uh, who owned Chicago White Sox. And Charles Comiskey was a part, he didn't do the scandal, but he was a part of the scandal that happened in 1919 with the Chicago White Sox. Some people call them the Black Sox. How many, how many of you have heard of this? Have some of you heard of this? Okay. So what happened is apparently Comiskey was really miserly. He was greedy. He was like, he was trying to pay these guys as little as he could do and get as much out of them. And they were complaining, you know, about this and that. And so some, a gambling syndicate got to some of them and eight of them apparently agreed to to throw the 1919 World Series against the Cincinnati Reds. And they, they intentionally lost this game. So it went to trial, it went to court, but in court, they were acquitted. They They weren't declared guilty. But the very first commissioner of baseball, the very next day after the trial banned these eight from baseball for life. And you're like, you th- you think about this and you go, how, I mean, a team is a team, right? You play for each other, you practice together, you go through the whole season, you go through all those practices, you go all through that, you're you trying to win, you're trying to win like North Carolina did yesterday against Baylor. You're just trying to win, Right? You're trying to do that. And somebody for some more money is going to throw the game? Really? That just, that just strikes at the very concept of team, doesn't it? Well, you know what? As Christians, we're not a team. We're better than a team. We're a family. And Paul is saying... I don't want you to be like the 1919 Chicago White Sox; those eight. I want you to use your liberty not just for you. I I don't want you to. I don't want you to focus on you. I want you to focus on others. Does that make sense? That's an evidence of spiritual immaturity. All right, there are two more. Into chapter ten, an evidence of spiritual immaturity is idolatry and desiring evil. Chapter ten opens up. Paul points back to Israel the forefathers, he calls them their forefathers, in the days of Moses. And he says, you know, all these people were together. They all drank the same spiritual drink, the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. They all had these wonderful spiritual blessings. But when they got in the wilderness, they complained and they wanted to sin against God. And so they were destroyed because of this. They turned their backs on God. They engaged in sexual immorality and they were grumbling. And in verse 6 of chapter 10... as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has taken you or overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so you can endure it. What do we do in temptation? (laughs) I mean, we're all subject to temptation. We're human. What do we do when it comes? I can tell you what not to do. Don't do this. Don't think about what you want in that moment think about god and focus on christ and that will help you overcome those temptations in fact paul brings back that eating and drinking issue again just just for a few verses in there in chapter 10 alluding back apparently to the same issue and then he concludes this great great verse that really is just such a such a Important principle in the Christian life, and one of the most important principles, I think, in First Corinthians. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This can guide us in everything. It can guide us in those things that aren't explicitly spelled out. Am I living today to the glory of God? Am I trying to bring glory to God? So the solution is to flee idolatry. And do everything for God's glory. Flee idolatry and do everything for God's glory. Speaking of baseball, um, I was with a 17-year-old a couple weeks ago. Really impressive young guy that I hadn't spent any time with in a while, but he's a really, really good baseball player. Uh, And I just asked him, I said, hey, what's going on with baseball? Who are you playing for? Are you going to do anything with it after you graduate and this and that and the other? And I know he loves baseball. He's been playing it for a long, long time. And I know he's really good at it. And he said, well, he said, I want to. We said, it just kind of depends on what God wants for me. He said, I'm kind of, I'm learning not to just play baseball for my glory, but for God's glory. I thought, wow. Yeah, (laughs) that's cool. Well, there's one more. One more evidence of spiritual immaturity that Paul talks about. And that's not understanding what it means to be a member of and serve the body of Christ. It Long, long sustained issues in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14. In chapter 11, Paul gives them guidelines about public worship, including what happens, uh, with, with men and women and what happens in the Lord's Supper. And then in chapter 12, 12, 13, and 14, he really gets, dives into the, The issue of spiritual gifts, because different people were exercising gifts and they were being selfish, like even at going back to the Lord's Supper. Some of them were actually just eating and not worrying about waiting for everybody else. That was selfish. They were focusing on themselves. But in in the use of spiritual gifts, they were they were looking at their gifts for themselves. They were thinking, this is my gift (laughs) and I'm pursuing gifts for me. So even in something as valuable as spiritual gifts, selfishness can creep in. When you become a Christian, God gives you at least one spiritual gift that's designed to help the body of Christ. It might be teaching, it might be serving, it might be encouraging, showing mercy, or just many. There are many, many different lists of spiritual gifts. And God gives everybody, every Christian, one or more. And... As humans, sometimes we can start thinking about them in selfish ways. And that's what Paul is addressing here. Look at some of the words that are at the heart of the discussion. Chapter 12, verse 12. These people like in the public assembly, some were like speaking in tongues, but there was nobody there to interpret it. And he said, no, that that's not supposed to be that way. Prophecies should only be given when... When it can be judged and things like that. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts, all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit so as to form one body. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made of one part. But of many, just just like your human body, right? You got fingers, you got hands, you got livers, you got spleens, you got hearts, kidneys, feet, hair. Some have hair. Some have more hair than others. One many parts, one 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 body. In verse twenty four, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its part should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Every one of you is just as essential to the body of Christ... As every other part of the body of Christ, now again, as humans we we tend to elevate certain gifts and people and say, "Oh, they're more important, not in God's eyes." And right out of this chapter twelve comes that great love chapter, chapter thirteen, often read at weddings and so forth, and it's a great chapter on its own. But think about where First Corinthians thirteen appears. <laughs> right in between chapter 12 and 14, (laughs) right? So all of this, you're you're one body in Christ. And if I speak, chapter 13, in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am nothing. I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, you see... They were, they were elevating certain sign gifts like, oh, tongues and prophecy. Oh, those are more important, right? Because they're really supernatural as opposed to just somebody who comes along and puts their arm around somebody and encourages them, right? They were elevating them, but they weren't exercising love. So, so Paul attacks those two or addresses those two tongues in verse one, prophecy in verse two. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So here's the solution, let love drive the use of spiritual gifts in one body. That's a lot of evidences of spiritual immaturity, isn't it? And unfortunately, the Corinthian church experienced it. And Paul is trying to get them to focus on others and focus on Christ and not focus on themselves. But where does the power come from? Are they supposed to pull themselves up by the bootstraps? Are they supposed to try harder? Well, no. We go into chapter 15, and the answer is the power comes from the gospel. The power to change comes from the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. And brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel today, too. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sin according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as to one abnormally born. That's the gospel. And if you believe it and keep believing it, not that you have to keep yourself saved, but a saving faith is a lasting faith. If you believe that you're sinful and Jesus died for you, he was buried and rose again, you too will be saved. (laughs) So hopefully you've believed the gospel and understood it. And that is the power of God in our lives To create all the change that he wants for us and we want for ourselves. So, what's in common? I I gave you this list of five. What's in common? They're very different from each other. But the solutions relate to Christ and others. If you put your focus on Christ, you put your focus on others... You'll mature spiritually and we'll mature as a body. The church will mature. In fact, this is God's word for us this morning. To mature spiritually, focus on Christ and others. To mature spiritually, focus on Christ and others. So, maturing spiritually is not this, right? Right? It's this and, as appropriate, focusing on others to help them. It's this. It's okay if you take your hand signals home with you this morning. Those are free. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards said, resolved. He had these different resolutions. One of them was resolved that all men should live for the glory of God. Resolved second that whether others do or not, I will. I think that's a great resolution. 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all of the glory of God. Let me close with this. Matt Woodley says that the average North American will spend about 88,000 hours or 40% of their time on earth working at a particular job. And then in addition to that job, there's all the other time that spent we spend doing things that are, Non work related duties like driving your car, changing a diaper, fixing a meal, helping a child with homework, studying for an exam, investigating proteins and amino acids, planting flowers, or standing in line at the DMV. And he says we often separate between what we call the sacred and what we call the non sacred, right? The sacred and the secular. And like sacred is when we're at church or praying, and everything else is in the secular. But he says, with according to that typical split between the sacred and secular, 88,000 plus hours of our lives don't matter to God. With such a split, we're cut off from the glory of God's deep, joy-filled purpose for our lives. Here's the good news from the Bible. God did not invent the sacred-secular split. We did. The Bible only talks about sin righteousness split or pride humility split. According to the biblical story, your whole life matters to God. All of it. Life is charged with glory, purpose, and goodness and is designed to be a joy filled offering to serve God and love your neighbor. So to mature spiritually, focus on Christ and others. Harvesters, Go do that this week. (laughs) To the glory of God. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.